0: Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing life, work, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. All fall, we talked with homeschoolers, and by that I don't mean people doing the remote schooling thing that is so exhausting and unproven and, quite frankly, excessively difficult for people. I'm talking about homeschooling where the education is done in collaboration with the student so that the student is motivated to do the work. Parents provide guidance and management for younger kids and consultation for older kids. It does not eat up nearly as much time. So if that's something of interest to you, go back and listen to some of the guests I had on in the fall because all of them were homeschooling anywhere between one and seven kids, and all of them have something in common with you all of them worked, some were single parents, people have done it through divorce, blended families, you name it, all of them have done it and they're absolutely brilliant. But as we come into the winter, we're taking some time to look at our mission some more and perhaps get some guests that are more closely aligned with that general balance of work, creativity, and community. So while we line up those guests, I'm going to be revisiting some of my shows from when it was just a podcast and not a radio show. Today's episode will include a revisit with John Bechtold, a theater director of enormous imagination, creativity, and resourcefulness. And even right now, when we are in lockdown, I've been involved with a play of his that is being done with this brilliant balance of a very limited, socially distant cast in a venue. And online, virtually, the audience is able to watch with a series of tech people who move the audience through space and time. It's amazing. But before we revisit that conversation, I would like to talk about one of the most humble tools for organizing kids in a family or for organizing systems in a family. And that would be the Sharpie, the unsung, humble Sharpie. If you have young children or more than one child, the Sharpie may end up being one of your most brilliant tools. The first use of it is shoes. A very small child that is trying to learn how to put on shoes will frequently get them on the wrong feet because very small children's feet are actually not that different left and right well it's not a big deal if children get their shoes on the right feet it is a discomfort thing it is a speed thing it's one of those skills and if you look I mean if adults look at children's shoes We get them, we would normally get them wrong. I think one of the things that causes us not to is whether the velcro, if they're velcroed, goes the right way. But in any case, none of it's easy and all of it could be made considerably easier. If you put the shoes on correctly on the child and their new shoes, you take a sharpie and you make a dot just on the inside of the big toe of. One foot and then you make an identical dot on the same place on the other foot so that if your child stands up straight with their feet together those two dots match. You can make a little heart, you can make a little star, you can make whatever shape shape you want, a triangle if you wanted to do that. And one of the easiest ways to do about this is that they have to kiss because then you can make that little sound and they have to somehow match. Now, as your child is getting more and more independent, you tell them to look for those dots and make them match. If the shoes are on the wrong feet, it will be not impossible, but incredibly difficult to make them match. You have to cross your feet and try to stand in such a way that you fall over. And believe me, every single child I've ever done this with has tried that. And you can laugh about it. It's actually, if you recognize that that moment is one of the very first moments of physical comedy for a child that they're really aware that they're doing it, it's very sweet. So it's even if it even if it is kind of this thing where they're trying to be uh trying to go around the rules or trying to somehow challenge you, it's marvelous in that it's one of the ways that a kid first shows a sense of humor and you can laugh about it and then it'll be uncomfortable enough that in a few minutes they're gonna want to change around to regular Shoes on regular feet, and they will be able to do so, independent of you, very quickly, if they have this key. Now, now I will bring up the other thing besides the inevitable comedy routine. And I have to say, it's such a sweet moment when a toddler is doing their first comedy that even though I saw that comedy routine dozens of times between my kids, the kids I nannied, other kids that I've taken care of in various contexts it's you still have to be the audience for it and it's it's very funny to see the same joke play out kid after kid after kid but one kid one of the kids i nannied one of the first kids i nannied so sweetly put this system in place for his sister and what he did is he put dots all over her shoes so that no matter how she put her shoes on she could make those dots match, which immediately undid the entire point of this system. It was very, very sweet. Sharpie comes off with non-acetone nail polish remover. We had a little cleanup, but in the meantime, it was a very darling and hilariously misguided impulse. But done correctly, you put the dots there, they match, you're out the door, and you've got a kid who can put their shoes on independently which is a big big step for most kids so that's the first use of Sharpie the second use of Sharpie is almost the same thing which is to put a dot on the front waistband of a pair of underwear now boys underwear has a fly in it and is rarely a problem girls underwear is identical front and back pretty much you there's a difference in cut But you have to be very attuned to the nuances of not only detecting that cut being different, but also then knowing which way it should go on your body, which is a fairly big jump for a kid. However, if you take your your Sharpie and you put that dot right there on the front, they can match it up with their belly button. I know a lot of people who have put that on the back or even put the initials of the child on the back. Don't put it on the back. Put it for little kids. Put it on the front, and then they can match whatever that is to their belly button. Again, fostering independence, comfort, systems. The third use, and you can do this in the front for as long as you want, as long as it's useful, uh, if you have children who wear hand me downs, so typically it's when you have kids of the same gender because they'll be passing down the same clothes with great frequency, obviously that's not all the time, but that's the general idea. If you have kids that are passing down clothes or or more more precisely if you have if you can't tell whose clothes are who or if there's going to be a moment where there's no way for you to tell whose clothes are whose anymore, then the Sharpie is your friend again. Child number one, oldest child, is child one dot. Every single item of their clothing then should have one dot on it. Maybe the back of the neck, maybe a label, wherever it is that you will know where to look. Obviously, when they're very small for underwear, put it right there where it's going to meet meet their belly button, and actually, underwear is going to be a special thing that I'm going to talk about in just a second. But for all the other clothes that they might normally be wearing, put one dot somewhere where it won't show on the outside, but you can see it quickly when you're doing laundry when that garment has been passed to the next child, that child is Dots. So you take your Sharpie when they inherit it and you put that second dot on there. And now sorting clothes for you and for the children, because children can and should sort clothes as part of their contribution to the family, is very, very doable. Very quickly, very systematically, the endless discussions, and believe me, they're endless, about what garments belong to whom will be settled. Now, Of course, smart kids can and will defeat this by putting their own dots there or whatever. That's a totally different issue. But this is a system that you can implement that makes the general system of laundry easier. Now, the reason I said that underwear is going to be a little different and even socks, I always suggest putting those dots on them because identifying them when doing the laundry is now going to be very, very quick. But in some ways, the system is not particularly relevant to underwear or socks because you're not going to have kids inherit older siblings' underwear and socks. It's not very hygienic. Kids wear out their underwear. It's not something to pass on. So you wouldn't expect to then get the second dot for the second kid. The reason you use those dots on those personal items is so that you can identify them very, very, very quickly when doing the laundry. So those are three incredibly quick things if you have small children that you can do right off the bat to give them enormous independence. And when it comes to those systems, it's part of building up a bigger system in which you are supporting children's Independence, physical independence, behavioral independence, but also interdependence for their ability to competently contribute to the household. All my kids, first of all, they were fascinated with the washing machine. I got a front loader washing machine, and it is worth every penny because very early on, kids love them. They loved. They would call it watching the TV. What's hilarious about that is that my sister, who is 20 years older than me, remembered that from the first iteration of open of those sort of front-loading washing machines. Remembered as a child, thinking it was like a TV show. It's very funny, but it's a very captivating appliance for them. So, if it's possible for you to either get one or go to the laundry mat or whatever, that is a really terrific. Appliance to have because they're already interested in it The other thing is children can competently do their own laundry starting at You teach them well you teach them with when they have any interest whatsoever, but starting at about seven or eight front loader top loader with a little step stool children can and should be doing their own laundry at that age They are capable of it. Parents are not servants. Families are not service agreements. Families are a collection of people that can and does take care of and support one another. Kids want meaning in their lives. Everyone wants meaning in their lives. Kids are often robbed of that meaning. Will you have to... Tolerate and absorb poorly done laundry sometimes, you bet you will. The biggest issue I ever had with laundry was kids leaving uh, wet clothes in the washer and forgetting to put them in the dryer, kids putting damp clothes in the dryer and forgetting to turn it on. Those were the main issues. And actually, hilariously, again, I was able to find an an appliance that overruled that. I found a, a washer dryer combo. It's a European design where you put, I used to call it the Harry Potter washer, or you put in dirty, dry clothes, and three hours later you take out clean, dry clothes. It washes them, it dries them. The end. I loved that machine, but you may not have one. You have to work around this. These are skills that people go into college not having, and yet a seven year old can do them competently. And one last thing, modern fabrics don't require the kind of separation and care that fabrics did 25, 35, 45 years ago. So we get handed down these rules, separate out the whites, separate out the darks, don't bother. Kids' clothes, unless you've dyed them yourselves or gotten them from other countries or something like that, unless there's a special sweater or something, again, where you can talk exceptions in general, The clothes that kids wear every single day can be put in the basket, can be put in the washing machine, washed, taken out, dried, brought upstairs, and put in their own drawers, in that order, with support from us. And kids want to be prepared for their adulthood, so we should help them. A few bonus Sharpie facts. Sharpie comes out with rubbing alcohol or hand sanitizer. So, when you get it on your skin, or more likely a kid gets it on their skin, you can get it off pretty easily with something that's alcohol-based. Nail polish remover can also work. Alcohol does a lot for Sharpies. If your Sharpies are dried out, you can get a little bit left from them, assuming there's still ink in there, by soaking the tip and rubbing alcohol. If you have it on fabric, do not use rubbing alcohol. Use hairspray instead. If you do try to use rubbing alcohol on fabric, you will see a very neat experiment happen, which is this incredibly tidy kind of craft you can do if you make designs on fabric with Sharpies and then you drip alcohol, isopropyl alcohol, on those designs, the ink will spread out through the fabric in a watercolor type of way. So if you feel like it, you can also use Sharpies in these kind of magical craft ways. But keep one in the car, keep one in the kitchen, keep them around. You can Velcro them to things and keep them tidy that way. It's just kind of neat how many things a Sharpie will help you with, humble and ignored though it may be. And while I'm on the idea of using it for something creative, feel free to actually use it on the walls. I led an artist at a wall, of, uh, <laughs> three walls of a room in a house that I built, and the results were absolutely incredible. And it was such a fun space after he was finished. And it's not the end of the world when you decide that you're gonna paint over or do something like that. You can always take it off with rubbing alcohol and paint over. You can always put a sealant coat and paint over. People get really bent out of shape about the idea of drawing on the walls, but it can be one of the most fun things you do in a house. Today I'm talking with John Bechtold, teacher and theater innovator, about the rewards and challenges of helping teens get their vision to the stage, the immersive theater process, and the transformational nature of the arts. The secret is having everybody in the room set clear goals, and then getting to work. I'm here with John Bechtold, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about the, the nexus of community, work and creativity so you can start with any of those and talk a little bit about what it is you do
1: great thank you i think i'll start with work since it kind of brings the other two uh, together which is probably something that i'll say more about as the interview goes on i live and work in western massachusetts Uh, during the academic year i am the theater teacher and performing arts department head for the amherst public schools and I mostly concentrate my teaching in the high school world there. And in the summertime, I run a summer arts program called DASAC, which is an interdisciplinary visual and performing arts a uh, summer program that is very progressive and, and a little weird and um, <laughs> uh, works with about a couple hundred kids each summer and a uh, delightful staff uh, in all those fields. So that, that's the, the kind of holding spot for a lot of things because out of those two jobs, that means I get to spend my uh, full calendar year with young people in the arts. And it's a pretty amazing place not only to foster that kind of presence and energy and and desire to make things with people that age. But it's also one of the finest venues I found for a really authentic community, really meaningful, thoughtful community. There's a lot that happens, I think, when you are an emerging adult but aren't yet pummeled by a lot of adulthood. You can still really be an idealist. And I think one thing I take away from a lot of my time in my work is wanting to preserve that sense of idealism in myself. And I probably have a good situation to keep that propelling forward. Mm. When you have those things in place, then the creative component and the artistic work just comes along for the ride real easily.
0: Mm. Mm. So what kind of works do you do with the summer program? How does that work?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, DASAC works across about a dozen different well, what we call studios or disciplines, basically. Anything from drawing and animation and video to theater and music and dance and plenty in between. And the structure of the place is set up so that we use 11 through 16-year-olds, which often is suggested to not be developmentally appropriate, I should say. A lot of schools would advise against that kind of a model at the ranges of GY. what we found is the exact opposite that they kind of spur incredible things out of each other. And that becomes part of the secret sauce for this. So we very intentionally make sure that the ages and interests and aptitudes of campers stay pretty mixed uh, when we're making project groups, but we also really endow them with a lot of choice about what they do and when. So they have a lot of agency. There's a lot of studios. We use the studios as defining frameworks, but we play in and among them all the time. So a lot of the work that comes out of the program is getting these kids in this heterogeneous group of age and ability to make big, multidisciplinary works together. That's some of the most common things that we do. Certainly not the only one, but I call it a hallmark.
0: And and then so the the two things that come up. The first is congratulations. That's a lot of trust, and that's (laughs) amazing. The second is do the studios tend to realize their goals by the end of the summer, or is it yeah. it's very ambitious?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they do. I mean, we, we really love to balance uh, process and product, and on staff we talk a lot about what that balance should be like in this kind of world that we're trying to make for them. And the good thing that kind of holds us in place is that there is an end product for all these things. There's a big presentational thing that everyone does at the end of the the session, which also means that we have a deadline and work towards that. So there is that framework that kind of guarantees we have to finish and really have something to show and share. And as far as the goals of our studios and work to complete work with that scale is one of the major ones. The other major goal of the studio is just to help foster community and bring both novices and kids that realize they want to be there for the rest of their lives in the studio in together. Mm -hmm and that, that just is so in the whole cloth of the place that we don't even consider it a goal. It's just a thing that we do.
0: What are some of the challenges of putting together a program like this?
1: I think the key challenge is, is the one that sits around humans. It, uh, getting the right staff is always a challenge. It's a very happy challenge, I should add, but DASAC is uh, a place that has a certain kind of spirit that gets very recognizable, but that spirit is just born out of the presences and attitudes of the people that work there so really finding the right people is, is huge it's just like casting in a play like that that's a huge, huge part of the job mm. and you do it right away
0: are you old enough that people have not you personally is Dassac old enough that people who went through the program are old enough to start working there is that kind of a feeder or do they really just go into the world and get-
1: yeah um yeah Dassac is, is old enough that. Some of the people that made this camp, invented this camp, now send their kids to it. Oh, wow. So it, it's, and there's certainly any number of campers that find themselves going up a ladder and turning into counselors and staff as well over the years. Um, there's some really beautiful long lines that come out of that. And, and I now have been there long enough that I've gotten to see a camper that I met when she was 11, turn into this amazing CIT and then become a counselor for like six, seven years after. And just that whole line Mm. is just so uh, personally just fulfilling to see, but as a pedagogical idea to have someone grow and change in one place in such a deep way for that length is really cool.
0: Right. Right. Is it an overnight camp or a day camp?
1: No. um, And I would actually say that's another actually very important thing. It's a day camp, which means Campers go home happy and exhausted, but then we get to go to dinner together at the dining hall and then go back to the studios and make our own work
2: uh, and get all the crazy
1: stuff that we do the next day. And so by night, it's kind of a commune of these incredibly gifted people that are also very dedicated to the classes they're teaching the next day. So we use the nights to play with ourselves, bring the studios to life, do a lot of stupid shit. and. <laughs> wake up the next morning and teach kids again. It's it's kind of a beautiful cycle. And if it was an overnight camp, that cycle wouldn't be able to exist.
0: Right, right. And how long does it last? Is it like one group of kids all summer or is it every two weeks or month? Or
1: um, It's two, three-week-long sessions for campers. Each session's is about 105 kids.
0: Wow, that is a lot to get done in three weeks. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, the time is another container for camp. And, boy, it pressurizes a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. And what kind of learning curve do kids typically have? I mean, do they come with some of this training or do they really start out, have to learn it and then?
1: It's a huge mix. I mean, certainly we want to be an artistic home for campers that are really already down that path and want a place where they can be taken seriously or find mentors and and even just great facilities to kind of grow with other people. So that's a huge part. But every summer we're introducing loads of kids to a pottery wheel for the first time or a dark room or an animation studio, and you get to see their minds get blown. And so <laughs> art for us is just how do we it's – a, it's, a, it's an access question. How can we provide maximum access to as many kids as we can?
0: Oh, cool. Oh, and what does DASAC stand for?
1: Deerfield Academy Summer
2: Arts Camp.
0: What's your favorite part about it?
2: My favorite part about it? I think it is that spirit uh,
1: that is unmistakable and it's you can it's something you i think really start to feel in the air and and I say you by suggesting that pretty much anyone at camp would, would say the same thing. It is this palpable feeling when camp has really kind of like become that big vibrant, creative, bustling community that's just unmistakable it's a little high energy it's a little irreverent it's a little weird mm-hmm. um and it's incredibly beautiful and i think i've gotten very attuned to hanging on to that uh when it arrives in the summer because i think it's something else that also charges me across the rest of the school year
0: mm. and how would you how would you want it to to change because everything does change how would you like to see it evolve
1: sure Well, camp does need to evolve to stay what it is. And that's something that we also believe that just needs to keep growing and transforming kind of organically we have really strong goals and principles our mission and objectives hasn't changed since day one back in 1991 so we know that that framework is really strong so what we're more interested in is the expression of those goals so we're interested in i think one of the challenges it is because it's partially also subsidized by deerfield academy since they own it which is really cool Uh it's cheaper than a lot of camps for a similar run and similar level of access to facilities, but still expensive. It's still about a 1000 bucks a kid to go per session. Mm. And making camp less cost prohibitive, I think is one of the immediate things that we're working a lot at right now. Mm. We're interested in increasing the range of diversity of kids that come, not just socioeconomically, but also by race and ethnicity. Um, we're really interested in trying to find kids in rural towns a little bit more. Northampton and Amherst provide Quite a number of kids, but just all these kids, and some of them do find us. The thing they tell us is we love DASAC, not just because it's a great place, but it's because the only place I get to make art all year because my school doesn't have an arts program. Oh. uh Love to find kids. And that's a lot, you know, a lot of rural districts, the arts, as in many places, get cut first.
0: Right, of course, of course. Can you see any kind of outreach at the other times of the year, or is it really a summer only? It's going to stay that way.
1: I think given the intensity with which Deerfield Academy runs their academic year, there probably just isn't any physical room to make much happen during that time. So yeah, we're we're kind of a Brigadoon. We we pop up and we disappear. <laughs> <here. laughs>
0: brigadoon camp, find it. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. You kind of touched on, well, that that's kind of, that kind of comp- comprises the community piece. What about regular, you know, rest of the year work for you?
1: Sure. So outside of teaching in DASAC, I also am a theater maker and try to get work in where I can, basically. Um, and I've realized more and more as I've gotten older, that's something I really care about. So around the Valley, I also make theater, as you well know, with a tooth productions a lot of the time, but also in any other kind of place where I can kind of get my hands dirty. Uh, right now, a lot of my work is focused on immersive theater, which really gets to take advantage, especially in Western Massachusetts, of the beauty of the spaces that we have, both the, the built and the environmental ones, to create work with people. So right now, I'm in the middle of a piece with the Emily Dickinson Museum that I'm remounting, that is uh, a walking headset piece with a cast of about 20 for two audience members at a time.
0: Okay, so how does that work? What happens when...
1: It is something that you buy a ticket through the museum and attend the museum that night for an appointed time. Then you are brought to a secret location, given a pair of headphones that have an MP3 track on them, and then you are sent off in a direction and you start walking. And eventually you run into someone and they turn, and when they look at you, every word that they're saying shows up in your head. Everything is synced to those headphones. Mm. And what results is a kind of telepathy that you feel like you have an audience member for this person staring at you. Uh, and then becomes a walking tour, kind of guided by these characters that kind of appear and disappear across the night until you end up back at the Dickinson homestead where there's a kind of culminating event.
0: Cool. And are the characters real life people or are they from like fictional from the poems or?
1: They are by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, they are people that blend in with downtown Amherst as you walk through. So anyone walking down the street might be an
2: actor. Oh.
1: You're out of the blue and suddenly you're connected to them. Oh. So it's meant to be a a, kind of an invisible play that you're in the middle of a public space having this intense experience, but anyone could walk by you and have no idea.
0: Well, that is interesting. And why why two at a time? What What's the logistics that require that? Sure.
1: Um, well, my heart of hearts, I would love it to be one person at a time because I think there's such a value in having an experience that's unmitigated by someone else. And if you're with someone, you're always checking in a little bit. Do you want to do this? Is that cool? Oh, let's go over here. And your own pursuit impulses get stifled. So I would say up front that, first of all, I really see this as a one-person piece in a lot of ways. <laughs> But there's a lot of value in having two people. For one, there's a safety thing, uh, both a physical and uh, a social one. I think if you're walking through a downtown space, especially when you're not, you know, you're more clued into what's happening between your ears than what's happening out there. So it's nice to have that person. Yeah. Um, it also gives you someone to validate your experience with.
0: Oh, yeah, of course.
1: Which. At the end of the show, people really want to talk about it with someone else and, and you can't talk during it. So listening to people talk, couples talk with each other at the end is so exciting. You know how sometimes you leave a play and just everyone's in the lobby just asking where they're going to get coffee. Yeah. And at the end of this, people are just like, just bubbling with the things that they have to share with this other person. And that's really cool. So we, we've kept it with two people, I think, largely for those reasons.
0: That's uh, so cool. It's funny. I was thinking the other way, like, wouldn't you want to make it bigger? But I totally get it. Although you're right about the sharing piece, because the car ride on the way home from every piece of theater, that's oh,
2: yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good stuff. part that's, of the
0: show. It really is. It really is. It's the it's sort of the dismount of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Are you working on anything new right now, or is that? Um. Well, this is piece that's in is process. In,
1: yeah, it's in process. It is a remount, but. As as with anything that I've remounted, it it grows and changes in its next run. But it really is this time, probably the last time I'm going to run it. And I'm using it also as a research piece for the thing that more or less is going to replace it. I'm working with the museum to make something that might replace some of their kind of app-based tours and create something a little more theatrical or immersive, basically, for someone that shows up at a museum and just wants to see what the place is about.
0: Mm. Mm, interesting. Are you working on other any other like plays or anything?
1: Um, aside from that, right now my head is in the school theater world. So we're we're working on several things. There, we'll put up three plays before December. That those have my three plays
0: really. before December casted, or are they classes?
1: Cast. So uh three productions.
0: Auditioned, yeah. casted, and produced before um, yeah,
1: December. Be one, basically, we're we're doing a Chekhov play at the end of October. We're doing uh, a series of 10-minute plays with student directors in November, and then we're doing an immersive production of The Laramie Project in December. Wow. <laughs> we stay busy.
0: You definitely stay busy. I mean, I remember, what I think when I was going to school, it was one play in the fall and a big musical in the spring. List that ends. was the same
2: for me. That was it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's very cool. Chekhov in a month with high schoolers?
1: Uh, five weeks. Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Which play? Three Sisters. And yeah, they've got this. Chekhov is something that I've avoided doing in high school because I love it so deeply. And it it is so hard and so beautiful in so many ways. But, um, this was the year and I kind of knew it going in. So I'm excited.
0: And did you, do you, do you audition and cast the first week or did you do it in the summer?
1: First week. So school just started on Wednesday. We just had our kind of info meeting on Friday. I'm going to auditions on Tuesday.
0: Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. I'm blown away by that.
2: <laughs> I am too. It's, it's wild. It's, it's a wild
1: place.
0: Wow. And then the 10-minute the plays, how many of those will there be?
1: Um, we'll do 10 of those, which means raising and nurturing 10 student directors along with that. That's another thing that we've really been aiming to do more is have more, not just acting and tech work, but directing and playwriting work. And so this is a big incubator for that. They'll uh, work with me. I kind of mentor the 10 of them throughout the process. They get some selection within the plays. I do most of the casting for them. They don't get to have a role in that too much. They're kind of handed a play and a cast and given a few preferences along the way. So that'll be a four or five week process too.
2: It's rapid fire, but it works.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that is rapid fire. Wow. Okay. And then what do you, do you have a plan for your immersive theater that you're allowed to say, or does that have to uh, develop?
1: Oh, no, no. Um, I could say the concept. I was just sharing this with the kids. Uh, We're doing a production of the Laramie Project, which traditionally is done kind of a la Our Town, kind of bare stage. Actors mostly stay, pedestrian clothes, et cetera, et cetera. For us, one of the things that we got really interested in was that the play was a documentary piece, just developed all these out of all these interviews with about 50 to 60 tons of people from Laramie. So to uh, and to get the audience out of a passive role, from hearing about the killing of Matthew Shepard and watching it come together, put it into this environment, they're going to have to actually go off in literal search of characters. So they'll be going around the performing arts wing of the school, where we'll have a bunch of miniature sets. and in corners and other spaces where they have to find and meet people and then they enter into the play that way and then are spoken to in first person as if they're the interviewer in the script.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And
1: then back together, reassemble as a full group. So it's kind of a together apart, together format.
0: And have you run this before? No,
1: this is, this is a, a new idea.
0: Has it ever been done as an interactive piece?
1: Not that we know of, um, and we, really, like we we had a good reason to do it this way, so I think we're the first.
0: Yeah, wow. Wow. So what are the, let me ask you this, so uh, what are the big challenges with this, with doing the high school work?
1: The high school is a challenge because there are a lot of extremes. Um, there are camper, or campers, there are students that you know, are getting ready to apply to conservatory schools. And there are students that are, like, peeking their head in for the first time and are really nervous and also have, like, a massive IEP and a paraeducator with them. And then there's just the the full swell of there's so many people involved. It can be a hard thing to manage. It can feel like chaos, I think, from a student's perspective before you feel like you land. I think one of the big challenges is... Having a really strong kind of welcoming mat because once they're in, it tends to be great, but it can be really intimidating and challenging. I think to find your foothold, especially if you're new, so I think that's a big challenge. As always, content and what you can and can't do, what you should or shouldn't be doing, figure out know, what your kind of mission is like is. Should we just be putting out Shakespeare? Do we have a social responsibility to be making certain kind of work? How do you engage students in those questions? That's always, a, again, a ripe and interesting challenge, but an important one. And then finally, just the lines of like trust and safety are always really huge, too. We do a lot of student leadership work, especially within the, the tech side, which is great. But there's also um, safety and what peer leadership Brings all the challenges there, so we spend a lot of time managing that so it works.
0: Mm. And then, what about so? How does it work with kids that don't get a role? Is there a place for them? And
1: sure. So one of the reasons why we do so many productions, we do about half a dozen productions a year, is to guarantee more or less any kid that will get you on at some point. And that's what we say in these meetings: is that our goal. There will be people that. We'll probably repeat presences on stage, but we also have this goal that everyone will get on stage and watch to at some point in the year. So kids aren't cast in Three Sisters, stand a much stronger chance of getting cast in briefs. And then mm. and those that don't have anything yet, learn any project, they're going to get to walk right in. Mm. You know, So that, that kind of spirit is really important. And that way, that it takes some pressure off to Auditions aren't like quite as, I don't know, as nasty as they could be. That's
0: what I was thinking about. What's the what's the largest cast you're gonna have for the year probably?
1: Um, it'll be the school musical, which we'll do in March. That has an open door policy. You show up on the first day and you're in the cast kind of thing. And I'm I'm guessing that we'll be in the like eighty to ninety range for that. Wow, okay. At uh, its peak a few years ago, the high the largest cast I think we have for the musical was one hundred and twenty-six. Oh so really swell.
0: Wow. What, what was that? What did you put on that had 126 people? That was Aida. That
2: was, that was wild.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That, and that's like the new, that's the, uh, wasn't that just put on a couple of years ago, that version of Aida? Yeah,
2: it's not that old. Yeah, that one.
0: Wow. Yeah. Dang. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, so that'll that'll probably be the biggest one. The Laramie, I'm hoping will be like 40 to 50 actors.
0: Okay. And what's your favorite thing to do of all these activities that you do with the students during the year? I
1: love making immersive and devised work with them. I think that's easily a favorite thing in large part because we really feel like we're putting our own stamp on something. We know that it's work that other schools aren't making. We have a, just a real sense of ownership over it since we aren't only dealing with the content, but we're dealing with the form. And that just is so exciting. So yeah, I think that that's just thrilling stuff. Like making our own work and knowing that even at a high school level, you can make some pretty amazing stuff.
0: Yeah. And how did you first get into immersive theater?
1: Uh, well, it was with Punchdrunk, your 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 neighbors. <laughs> uh, I was at grad school and met them at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, and was doing part of my my grad school time just to to be there and. and work around and in there. And then I saw that they were advertising the show that sounded a lot like this immersive theater company that I had heard about from London. And I was pretty excited. And then I saw their name and realized that they were making their American debut right <laughs> in my backyard. Oh,
2: wow. So I,
1: I called them up and told them I would sweep floors for them as long as they wanted me to. And they said, sure, come by. And then the first several days was a lot of, like, crap work. And when they saw I wasn't going to leave, then it started getting more exciting. And then I worked with them for a couple of years on their production of Sleep No More and came back to school and then just got back out to see them again, actually just last year when I was on sabbatical in London.
0: Um, that is very cool. Do you have any goals that you have for the school year for the students? Is there a place you'd like to get to with them that, uh, and with the programs are kind of a, I don't want to say a plateau, but an aim where it would be like very satisfying?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, the goal I told them on Friday is that my goal is that every student in the high school takes part in a theater production before they graduate. Oh, nice. At least how, that,
0: how many students just how, uh,
1: There's a thousand kids okay. the high school.
0: Just to give an idea of how many you would yeah. be trying to get in the door. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it'll, It'll never happen, but that'll never keep me from not wanting it to happen. (laughs) So, But in a more realistic sense of goals, there is that sense of just like the bigger, the wider, the tent, the better. So really getting new students involved is a big goal, helping them find this as a home. But then I also think we do have some lofty, I think, artistic goals, especially for Laramie Project, what we want that to look and feel like. We're also hoping that it can be part of a pretty big kind of social education and, and work of advocacy across the schools. So one of our goals is to, to enable that and we're, we're in process with that too.
0: Mm. Mm, wow. And then your own, your own personal work. I mean, it sounds a lot like you managed to integrate a lot of that into the summer and the student programs, but what else do you have going on that's neither of those? It's your own work.
1: Sure. Well, I'd say that that integration for one is kind of intentional. One, I like using my own students in some of those pieces, and that's worth noting because I think that's so exciting for both of us. Right. Um, but it also it w- is a way of saying that school and camp also become like weird little labs for the work that I make outside. Like I can almost like play an idea out with them and then take it out further. <laughs> so for outside of school, I think the things coming up for me, this, uh, this what will probably end up being an app. The idea is to create a play that doesn't need any live actors for the Emily Dickinson Museum, basically take the performance that I'm putting up this fall and almost like find a way of putting it in a bottle so that the museum can own it and deploy it at will. Also, just want to see if I can like make it work like that. Can I make an app that's really a theater piece? So that's that's probably the next big project that'll take some time. And then further down the road, there's a piece I'm very interested in making with one of the the area hill towns that kind of is a piece almost in about the town itself. Um, and kind of would weave and grow around the town. So that, that's something that's going to take a little bit longer, but that's, that's been on my mind a lot.
0: Mm. And those, and when would you want to be, you know, implementing those? Oh, uh,
1: the, well, the Dickinson piece is going to go into work next a year from now. This is like the research like portion, and then like, the, the earnest work will be a year from now. Mm. And then we'll see about the rest. There's also another immersive show that I did recently uh, in Turner's Falls that we remounted um, at the start of the summer, and it feels like something that might come back again, so that also is kind of in the future, mm. um, giving that a home again.
0: And what one, what's that one about?
1: That was a piece called Deus Ex Machina. It was and is a theater piece about the Shea Theater in Turner Falls, which was a, a theater built as a 1920s vaudeville house. And then it evolved into any number of things, a movie house. It got taken over by a bunch of hippies in the 70s and turned it into a commune. And then it became a theater again, and then it changed ownership. So it has this wild and varied history and so the sh- the piece is about the history of that theater and kind of the ghosts in the walls. Mm. And it's also kind of an ode to the world of making theater. The audiences get to go through it in small groups and go everywhere from backstage to the balconies to the makeup rooms and kind of run into these kind of denizens of this place and get to see all this stuff that usually a lay audience member doesn't get to see, like the magic of an actor putting on makeup or watching a performer from the wings, like those kinds of things start to become the vocabulary of the show.
0: Are there drawbacks to that kind of theater? I mean, it's not common. And yeah, and there's crowd management things. Sure.
1: Yeah, there are definitely drawbacks. It has a lot of challenges that a stage play doesn't have. The more work you make like this, the more you realize how controlled... Like an, to an obsessive level, a traditional stage play is, which is wonderful. Um, but that's what it is. You're in this nice, clean, flat box with all these outlets and connectors and safeties and da 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 da. It's all very linear. And here, you really have to tame a space, both artistically, but also in terms of safety. Hmm. So, and then you have to think about an audience navigating that space safely. So, some of those just kind of ground level challenges that you only have to think about in a regular play take up a lot of your initial time and work hmm. like that. So that's, that's a foundational challenge. And then there is the question of, do people want to come see something like this? Or would they rather just be able to sit in a chair and, and be entertained? And,
0: and what do you find? Is it a hard sell?
1: Not that hard of a sell. And that <laughs> audiences that come to it will do the selling to their friends. So we found what's worked here to build an audience for immersive theater in the Valley is to get some key people in and make sure they get a, a good chance to see them talk about it with us and then trust that they'll tell other people and then let it network out. And then our audiences seem to find the piece so the piece finds the audience in a more natural way. So that's been pretty good. I think there's always room for growth. I'm hoping that there's more and more.
0: Does video marketing help at all? Because some of this stuff seems very experiential and like maybe, I don't know, it seems like it would be viral for some of it. I think
1: it's getting more useful uh, that that kind of a medium simply because the word immersive now, for one, is such like a, a kind of buzzword. I think so many people want, you know, an experience, you know, over, over than like a pitch. Hmm. So experiential, you know, style theater now is a more well-known phenomenon. It's just a more common vocabulary, I think, in a lot of advertising and marketing. So that means like a video of this kind of stuff is drawing better. But a few years ago, it just looked really abstract, I think, to a lot of eyes. Now there's a language to understand it. Hmm.
0: So there's two ways to say this, and, and either, you can pick either one of them. So right. one of them is to ask, like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Although my sense is that you're not. Um, <laughs> so you can avoid that one if you want. But what would you do if you had, I don't know, unlimited time, unlimited money? What, where would you go with this?
1: Um, I would love to explore scale if I had unlimited time money and w- was feeling super fearless, I would love to explore scale. I would like to build a town, mm. you know, I would like to do something like that, or, and, and have a kind of evolving storyline that could unfold over durational time. Um, I would
0: immediately love think of the Truman show, but yeah,
1: no, I, I, I am into that. I, I think that like, that might not be far off. I was just seeing a, um, I was just at Mass Mocha recently and was looking at the James Terrell exhibit, this, this light and environmental designer. And he has been slowly building this massive kind of dome-shaped space for a series of light work. And it's at such a grand scale out in the desert. And it, I feel like that's the kind of language I'd love to live in. Like, what would we be like to really transport Someone and, and help them to literally step into another world, so that would be incredible on the flip side of that, I also have to say that i do I have done a number of headphone based pieces or ideas like this Dickinson work, and the reason why I love that is its intimacy and the interior landscape and and this is something I really would credit punch drunk with the the verb relensing. Your 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 view on the world and how theater and theatrical work can relens your experiences, and the intimacy of that is really meaningful to me. So I think I'm interested in both ends of the spectrum. Like I would love to make more pieces of theater for one for one person. But I would love to make giant environmental pieces. So I think those <laughs> ends are the, the worlds I want to live in.
0: So can you speak to the uh, so relends, relens R E L E N S? Is that what you're saying? So like, yeah. What does that mean?
1: Well, it was, it was used, uh, I was talking with one of the producers, of Colin Nightingale, and he kept using that word when we were taking a walk around a show that they had just put up in London last fall. And the show was formatted to take place all around the city of London with a lot of interaction along the way. And part of the challenge was that he, they weren't using a lot of actors for the piece. And so Colin said, our job isn't really to create a performance here for you to go discover, but to re-lens your experience. We want people that grew up in London their whole life to see it anew. And when you have the right kind of prompts, sensory prompts, physical things, smells, sights, frames, even the action of moving or running, you know, anything that can reshape that, you pile that on enough, um, and eventually the body can start to see things fresh or re And So I love that wow. idea.
0: Okay. Yeah, that yeah. is beautiful. Um, yeah. Can you? Would you ever be interested in having a company that just you know did this or did short and long form?
1: That that's a t- timely question in a way because the the Deus Ex Machina that production in the theater was just remounted for a second time by about two thirds of the original cast and then a new crew that came in. And between those two casts, it's about 30 people, and we found that we really, really like working with each other, Mm. and that we really like making this kind of work together, and that a lot of us spoke about, like, wow, we feel like we finally found our people, and we'd love to do this forever. Why can't we do this forever? (laughs) So there has been talk, I think, among that cohort of, well, should we start a proper company? Um, And make this a thing and for now I, I have to admit I'm resistant to that I kind of don't want too much of a label or on, on who we are or what we do I want us to live project by project because I think that's really where the work is and there's almost something like I, too many theater companies get so into the idea themselves and I'm just I don't want that to be a distraction I just want to make the work
0: would you want to see this expanded to you know universities or university department or a school on its own? Do you think, or
1: as an immersive
0: work, or I just mean uh, immersive theater, actually, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I think so, and there are some programs now that do it. In fact, the the UK education standards now reference immersive theaters one of their strands within theater. So to see America uh, American schools uh, have that kind of sophistication, I would love that. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And start with just all schools having a theater program to begin with, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of college and university programs, yes, also, at the University of Massachusetts, this last year, they did their first immersive theater piece, and it was very exciting. It's one of their main stage pieces, and I was so glad, because I think there are a lot of incredible theater folks in the university world, but there's also a lot of people that have not changed in 20 years, and theater has definitely changed the last 20 years. So this, I feel like, could be very invigorating for a lot of departments, if for no other reason, just to remember that form is so essential to theater and it shouldn't be
0: invisible. Right. Right. Do you document all this? And then have you ever thought about making any documentation into a curriculum, sharing it a bit?
1: Yeah. So I do a reasonable job of documentation. I don't do an amazing job, but... I do make sure, sure that I have good show photography. I'm not very interested in show video, by the way. I think that is something that I don't do very much intentionally. But my own personal documents, like I love, I love a good spreadsheet. So <laughs> I keep good track of all my spreadsheets and paperwork and charts and figures, and those are very useful, all the framework stuff in a show. My research documentation is copious but sloppy. I don't think it's very well organized to use. Like, here's my method of research to someone else. Mm. But that that raw material's there. But on the flip side, in a very practical way, yes. This fall actually I'm pitching a devised immersive theater course at the high school with the goal of starting it next school year. So hmm. yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm very literally thinking about curriculum.
0: So devised immersive would mean teaching the kids how to create their own immersive theaters. Is that what you're thinking or?
1: Yeah, so it would be a course cool, in them making work and learning the form along the way that they would all be making pieces.
2: Whoa. That's very cool. Wow.
1: Yeah, so
0: we'll see how that goes. Wow. Well, wow. Thank you for, for chatting with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else in this balance between work and community and creativity that, uh, I don't know, Tell I know one thing I ask people. What would you tell your younger self?
2: I would tell my younger self that your naivete is a strength and to plow forward. That's, that's what I'd tell him.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you, John Vechtold. Thanks for coming and chatting today.
1: Yeah, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for queuing this up. <laughs>
0: That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.